This show is distributed by SoundCloud. Welcome. Welcome to episode 188 of Texan, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. In this show, Jason is talking to Wayne Graham, author of Beginning Facebook Game Apps Development. Wayne, well, thanks so much for uh, coming on the show. It's, uh, it's, I'm really looking forward to talking to you. Um, we've never actually had someone on the show who, to talk about uh, game development, uh, at least social games. Oh, great, great. I'm looking forward to it. I think back, we talked to Chris Park, I think, who developed a, uh, an actual, I guess, or like a, like a space game, like one of these, uh, I don't know, it's kind of like, I don't know what you'd call it, like a StarCraft kind of thing, um, mm-hmm. a long time we first started the show, but this is, I think this is the only other game expert uh, interview that we're, we've had, or we will have. So um, why don't you uh, give us a real quick, uh, I don't know, run through of what the face get, Facebook game market and ecosystem is like? Well, th- this was kind of a, a, a book that I wanted to get into when they uh, when I was approached by APRES to write an, a follow-up to my first book on Facebook APIs. The, um, and they wanted uh, something that was a little bit different, something that was kind of pushing things around. Um, and one of the, the big things that people spend a lot of time on is gaming uh, and social gaming uh, and very specifically. And this is kind of a genre of game where you can kind of pick it up and play it for a few minutes and set it back down. Um, right. Being Facebook, it, they've also wanted to monetize it. And there are some, a lot of, uh, of very uh, successful companies that have, have done a really great job of actually figuring out how to actually make money on all of these games. So you've got companies like Zynga um, doing Farmville and their own Farmville clones. Um, and this is there aren't a lot of companies. Most of the, the big game developers are, are looking at much, much larger, much more expensive games to actually develop. Uh, and, but Facebook actually provides um, people an opportunity to really actually get in and, and more of the, the, um, the hobbyist developer who has a game that they really want to be able to develop and share with their friends, get out there and provide content that's fun for them and, and kind of gets back to some of the roots of gaming. Um, you're seeing a lot of side-scrolling games, a lot of games that look like they were built for uh, Ataris or Amigas. Uh, and th- there's actually been a, quite a bit of a shift from Flash-based content into the HTML5 space over the last year or so. Um, and so what I wanted to do when uh, APRESS contacted me and said, uh, we'd love for you to write a, a book on this, and they started um, floating ideas back and forth about what this would actually do. And one of the, the something that I, I've always felt very passionate about is uh, building games that, that teach you how to do something. Um, games give a lot of people uh, an opportunity to do something that's not normal or just kind of making some text input and output. And this was really kind of a way for me to reach an audience um, to teach them how to approach programming, uh, introduce them to a genre of gaming, um, and 
an opportunity uh, to get into the Facebook uh, ecosphere um, as, as kind of a, a beginning element of how, you, how do you approach programming? How do you begin working with APIs? How do you begin working with um, multiple systems and mixing them together in such a way that actually produces a, a, an element? You know, it's actually probably a pretty good way to start programming because, especially when you're young, I think a lot of us started programming, when we first started programming, we, we kind of played around with making little games. Mm-hmm. And that gives that would give a young developer something to do that they're excited about. I mean, you know, when you're in high school or college or even, you know, in your 20s and you just kind of want to screw around with programming, creating something fun like that would be um, probably have more motivation You'd have more motivation to do that than it would be to say create some app for some market that you may or may not be that familiar with. So that's that's really cool. Is that so? Was that was that a primary driving force for you um, for for this book was getting the new developer into programming? Well, it, it was one of them. Um, in my day job, we spend a lot of time uh, rethinking uh, how do we actually uh, teach uh, methods to graduate students, and so. This was kind of a, one of the components of this. How do we explain kind of complex moving systems to um, beginning developers? The other part was I just wanted to be have an excuse to actually sit down and, and write some games again um, <laughs> in a sustained right. uh, way and be able to explain kind of the, these components because uh, game development is uh, just – there is a lot that – you could go into and and discover. So there's um, artificial intelligence, there's uh, scrolling, there's uh, 3D effects, there's uh, art development, there's sound development. So it really has a lot of of areas for anybody to really get into. And I just wanted a real excuse to actually be able to get back into some of those more fun things that you sometimes have to get away from in in your nine to five. So um, one of the, the... the components of the book was to introduce this kind of programming to the beginner, but it was, um, in a lot of senses, me being selfish and wanting to do something fun with games. Right, right. Well, why don't you give us a quick back, uh, get overview of your background and how you got into uh, doing this book or, or your previous book? And, and it sounds like your day job has some relationship to, to the book, so maybe tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, I am actually a historian by training. I, I went to graduate school to be a historian, and I did that for a while. Worked on some grant projects in the late 90s and kind of got into programming as a way to automate what I was doing, the really boring things that I, was, I kept going and doing over and over again. Uh, and I was working on a grant-funded project, and uh, the funding uh, dried up, and I had to go find a job. I had one of those "oh my god" moments. What am I going to do with my life? Um, and, and you were this is at you were in graduate school, or you just finished your graduate degree? When I you needed just a job? finished graduate school. Yes, okay. um, and um, f- trying to figure out what am I going to do next. This um, it was either going uh, start a PhD program or figure out something else. Oh, let me show you one quick question though. You you yep. said you you were using you were getting into programming to help you automate some of the more tedious things you were doing in mm-hmm. your in your graduate studies. Yeah. But you, how did you learn how to program in the first place? Because normally when you think of people who are in the humanities, they're not usually so technical, and, and you would think it would be sort of a very odd case that in, a humanities person would be like, "Hey, I'll just go write a computer program to do this." Right? Yeah. I mean, 
So um, basically what happened was uh, I was encoding these uh, 18th century books um, into an XML schema called TEI, the text encoding uh, format. Mm -hmm. And what that allowed you to do is do all kinds of referencing people and that kind of stuff. So the workflow would basically be we'd get a scan of the book. We would run it through OCR, and this was the late 90s, so the OCR software was not that great. Uh, it would put everything into tables, and I just started realizing that when I would open up these um, documents in, in Microsoft Word, that there would be some patterns that I could actually kind of recognize. There would always be a table around these certain things. So I started um, kind of hacking on um, uh visual basic macros in Word to try to figure out how I could actually get these to do what I wanted to and right. kind of reformat uh, these Word documents into uh, what I would need for the XML. Actually, it was SGML at the time. Um, so, and- so that sounds like a really, I mean, that sounds fairly familiar to, uh, probably to some of our listeners who start out, I mean, there are people who didn't get a formal education in computer science, but maybe learned by writing Excel macros or whatever. But mm-hmm. so you start with Word macros, which yeah. I, didn't, I wasn't even aware those existed. So that's funny. Okay. <laughs> so, cool. They may have dropped them since then, but uh, at the time they, they were in there. Okay. Uh, yeah. So, um, and from there, um, kind of, I had to come figure out a way to actually manage all of these things. We had several hundred thousand objects that we were managing. So I um, got into databases and then trying to figure out how those actually went together. Um, and so it really came down to a, reading a lot of books um, and just kind of hacking my way through and trying to kind of feel my way to what exactly it was that I was trying to do. And that now, was, were you were you sort of technical growing up or anything? I mean, what gave you sort of the confidence to that you could do something like that? That you could just learn how to program, or was it just kind of a series of baby steps where, you, where all of a sudden you woke up and you realized, "Hey, I'm actually writing code." Yeah, it, it was more of a, a bunch of baby steps out of necessity. So um, I would figure out how to I uh, I needed to accomplish something and then kind of move to the next step. It for I, I would never kind of categorize what I was doing as, as coding at first. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was just kind of trying to figure out a way for me to do less work or less right. work, okay. uh, which is, I, I, that's, my wife has told me she's never seen somebody work so hard to be lazy. Um, and I think that, <laughs> that's, that's actually probably a good mantra for most of uh, programming, right? I mean, yes. they, we always talk about how lazy we are and really it's just about, like you said, like how do I, how do I make this thing easy? Well, how do I, how do I automate these tedious tasks yeah. that I have to do? So the um, after I I kind of got a little bit better and better at that, and then um, as as a lot of technical folks who are kind of getting their their legs uh, wet with this, the um, you get noticed by your colleagues as the person to go ask instead of calling the help desk when you have a computer problem. Right, right. And uh, that they started doing that with me. And uh, then the company I was working for eventually sent me to some courses to become a, a Microsoft certified in uh, desktop support, okay. which was cool and everything. And then kind of picked up the um, some of the server stuff for me. Um, and when the funding for the actual project I was working on ran out, um, I was doing a lot of database development, uh, managing some servers, um, and basically um, being 
what I would kind of classify as one step below like a, a full-on engineer. Um, I'd had most of the coursework to actually do a lot of systems work, um, but I hadn't been like the person in charge. It was just kind of one of those other things that I could do, or I could at least articulate from the historians I was working with to the actual uh, server engineers what the actual problem was and what they were trying to accomplish, which was actually a, a skill that that um, not a lot of people actually have, being able to take a concern that uh, an individual is trying to to solve when they don't have the vocabulary to actually describe it to technical people. Yeah, uh, I, I think that's a, a valuable position to have in a lot of um, sort of problem domains because you have the problem domain experts or practitioners who are trying to do something who aren't technical and right and you have the technical people and there's this huge usually there's a huge gap there in in communication in terms of understanding one another and trying to describe what you want so that's really interesting you talk about that i we've talked about that on the show before um my background being in the world of trade and finance and that was the big difference between the traders and the the developers and the quants nobody could speak to anyone else yeah. very well so if you had someone in the middle that person was critical and so that's yeah. interesting oh, that, that, that even in the world of say um, acad- academia and in history that that would happen so the um as i got into that and and i realized that i, I was kind of good at it um uh, a position opened up at the university i had just graduated from and um i i took that position instead of pursuing a, a um a PhD when I realized I could make a lot more money right now than I could um, after 10 years as a, as a PhD candidate with the hope that I might get a job. Um, right. Well, let me shoot about that real quick. I, and I know this is, this is very much a tangent, but mm-hmm. so you would, you would, I guess you would about finished up your master's degree at that point and you were looking yes. to, so a PhD program in history could go on for another 10 years. Is, yes. that, is that real? I, I had heard, I had read some things that talking about humanities, like in literature and history and, I, I don't know, maybe philosophy and some other things, that it's not like in the hard sciences where it's more like three to five years tops that it can just drag on and on and on. It was, is, that, is that the case now? Is yeah, that actually usually um, uh, most PhD candidates are in a program for six to eight years. It can go on to about 10 to 12. Um, it just really depends on what you're trying to actually do. Uh, a lot of the work that you do in the humanities just takes a long time to actually collect all of the research, um, get the funding to actually travel to where you need to go to where the records actually are, and all the time trying to string together little jobs around different university um, groups to actually um, eat during the day. So, right. um, yeah, it's... It, it, it will take you a, a quite a bit longer to finish a, a humanities PhD, typically. Wow, that's that's amazing, actually. That that it's that inefficient. Um, so yeah, that sounds that makes a lot of sense that you would then consider another option. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I became a sysadmin, and I did that for about oh, like ten years. And in that time, um, the where I was working at was a, the College of William and Mary. And um, they were doing a lot of innovative things. And I would just find something that just didn't work the way I quite wanted it to do um, and then figure out how to make it better. Uh, And kind of those gradual little baby steps of just noticing that there was something that could perform better or be tweaked ever so slightly um, got me actually reading code. And that really taught me a lot. How do you actually construct these programs? How, How is this one widget actually working? Um, and then 
uh, after a while, I kind of decided that I needed to actually formalize this. And the university had a, uh, a great program where they actually paid your tuition if you took courses. So I started taking some um, computer science courses to actually f- kind of formalize what I'd been kind of teaching myself um, and get it from the uh, CS perspective, um, which was just an awesome thing and right. uh, a lot of fun. Um, and I don't want to say it taught me new things, but it gave me the vocabulary to act of what I was actually already doing and uh, gave me a lot more confidence to um, be able to tackle just about any type of programming issue. Right. Okay. So, and how many of those courses did you take um, before you it, felt like you were actually able to do some stuff that you needed or wanted to do? So, the um, it was about... Um, Three three courses, I guess. Um, the the kind of the intro to programming, um, um, the uh, data structures, and the um, uh, they had a, a system where they were just setting up teaching object oriented programming and design patterns. And after uh-huh. those three courses, I, I felt pretty confident that I could just about take uh, on anything I wanted to. Right, um, and then. It, Later on, we were doing some um, things um, that we were starting a graphics program at the university. So um, I, the the actual graphics lab was going to be located in the library I was working at and allowed me to kind of sit down with a faculty member and learn a lot about how graphic design or excuse me, not graphic design, but actual um, 3D graphics um, renderers are are constructed how all of the the hardware components are put together um and then i i took the course and um, did all of the the cs things like uh, build a ray tracer from scratch and learn um had to teach myself linear algebra uh enough to actually do all of the coursework um, right and after so you know so you didn't you didn't take a course in your algebra you just got a book nope. and taught yourself huh just yep just kind of learned enough to actually figure out what it was I actually needed to do um, and then did it, um, which is Very cool. Um, basically I had, I did probably about three times the work of, of the folks that actually had those courses, but um, I did cooler stuff. Is that, is that because um, you, cause you weren't, okay. So if you're in a course and they have, they have a very specific curriculum, like this is what you're going to learn. This is what mm-hmm. you need to learn for the test. This is your homework set. Do it. Where you're kind of figuring, like, I'm not exactly. You're thinking to yourself, you're not. I'm not exactly sure what it is I have to learn. All this stuff might be valuable, so I'm just going to start. Yeah, about pretty much. It, it would. It would. Um, as a historian, looking at um, how um, things actually got derived and how people approached the answer, and I, I would sometimes get lost in the history of how this mathematical formula came to be. Um, so I would go down some rat holes uh, myself just because of my own inclinations. But um, figuring out what part of, of this mathematical formula I really need to understand how to do or, or even what an eigenvector was or an eigenvalue and what the difference is um, was a little bit of a learning curve. Yeah, and so for, for our listeners who aren't familiar, so linear algebra is used, the, the transforms are used for, for translating 3D objects, right? And in the, in the, the, the sort of, in the 3D space co- coordinate systems. I mean, that's, that's why yes. you need linear algebra. 
Yeah, you, you, you need to be able to not only transform and move objects around in 3D space, you also need to be um, exceptionally efficient in solving um, equations simultaneously. And that's all, all of what linear algebra will allow you to do. So, um, yeah, it's... Um, so there actually, is a, there actually is a use to linear algebra. It's not just uh, fun with matrices. That, that is true, yes. <laughs> Okay, so uh, well, I, I, I'm I'm just fascinated with uh, you your path because it was that was so it's so kind of unexpected. Go from historian to uh, sysadmin to programmer to you know learning the math behind 3D graphics engines and then doing I guess you must. So then I guess you what you started working in the doing the actual coding some of the 3D graphics stuff. Yeah, we um, the the entire. Um that course was building everything from scratch. So you got into um, OpenGL and um, um, had to build your all of your transforms from scratch um, for rotating into different um, perspectives in 3D, uh, building your own rain tracer, which uh, um, generates photorealistic um, um, images and uh, doing uh, 3D visualizations of scientific data. And th- that was really the kind of three areas that this course uh, covered and just learning how this stuff was actually put together was just absolutely fascinating. Um, probably one of the hardest courses I've ever taken um, just because I didn't have the math background, but one of the most right. fascinating. So, okay. So how did, so then the next steps after this, how did, let's uh, um yeah, so yeah, this is about uh, 2007, and this fa- uh, Facebook had been out for a couple of years. Um, they had um, limited themselves to higher education at the time, and they had just come out with this API. Um, so I, I thought, oh, this is kind of cool. I, I wonder what we can do about it. So I started kind of experimenting. And at this time, the Facebook API had horrible documentation. There were very few code examples. Uh, and it seemed every single week they'd either break something or add some new component on. Uh, and it was kind of a, a Frankenstein API um, where they just keep globbing on things. And so I started kind of writing a, a, some blog posts about um, working with this API. And um, eventually was contacted by A-Press to write a book. And they had just started a, um, a nascent press, first press, where you're, um, the focus was really on getting um, exposure to new technologies out very quickly. So I wrote a, a, a book real quick, is maybe 100 pages, on actually using the Facebook API. It was really kind of aimed at um, closing some of the holes in the documentation, um, which were vast at the time, um, and ex- explaining how to do some cool things that you could um, show people how to um, log onto a page. It, at the time, it, that was not very simple to have um, Facebook API in front of your um own website for authentication um, and integrating it into your actual website uh, externally was a bit of a bear. So it covered some of those things, how you could um, uh, interact with external uh, APIs like the Amazon Web Services um, to do some cool stuff. So I wrote that real quick um, and then quickly changed jobs. So let me ask you. Uh, I want to. I want to just uh, back up a little bit. So, what yep. was I? What I find really interesting is that you just wrote some blog posts. I imagine some tutorials or whatever on writing how to how to deal with the Facebook API, and that mm-hmm. in itself caused APRESS to contact you. Yes. How if many we, How many blog posts did you write? It. You know. It. it wasn't 
that maybe was maybe 10 or 15, but they were always, they were kind of like, hey, look at this cool thing that you can do with it. Um, and then kind of building up into an application. Um, right. So it was, wasn't that many, but um, at the time, I don't think there were very many people actually writing about it. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about that on the show a number of times, is that one way to make yourself into an expert is just jump into some new technology that's coming out and start writing tutorials about it. Mm-hmm. And then, and, and what happens is, is with the magic of the internet, you you become sort of the de facto expert or one of them. So if somebody looking to hire somebody to build some of that technology, or say a publisher looking for an author, they're going to go on Google and start typing in, uh, you know, hey, you know, start typing in um, th- that that uh, technology, and your blog post or tutorials are going to come up, and then you're going to be like one of the de facto experts on the web. Yeah, it's kind of crazy, but that is, it seems to be the way that the, the web works uh, in a lot of respects. Um, just being able to, to write about it, and, and sometimes you don't even have to do it that well to become the um, de facto expert, um, as long <laughs> as there's um, some, some good content that you can put out or something cool that, that's innovative. Um, but yeah, that, it seems to be the way that the web is really working. How, how, how in-depth were these tutorials? Were these like, you know, were, was each tutorial like five or ten pages of... Oh, no. Of, uh, no. I mean, it, it, when the, the, this API first came out, the, um, I mean, they would have just stubs um, on the wiki for the documentation of what this thing might do in the future. And oftentimes they were changing it. So I was actually just going in and reading the source code um, from the client libraries to see what was going on. Um, So it wasn't like totally in depth. It was just more of um, there's this gotcha and this is how this is actually working. This is how you do it uh, and work around this thing. So they weren't really in-depth tutorials even. It was more um, just exploring what some possibilities were. Um, but the documentation at the time was so horrible and there was just nothing out there. No, there were some clan uh, libraries, but there was just no nothing really about how do you put it all back together. Right, right. So, in, and um, for our listeners, uh, we'll... we'll my, my plan is that we'll start a- talking about Facebook game development, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'm sorry. I, I just found this fa- this, your path fascinating. And I just want to ask you one more question about this yep. uh, process. So your first book deal, I mean, I would imagine that, at least I hear from a lot of technical writers, that you're probably not going to make money off the book or not make enough money to really make it worth your time mm-hmm. a- as a money-making endeavor, but that it serves as a launch pad for other things. Has that been the case for you? Yeah, the, well, the... Um I chose to stay in higher education. Um, I, I did change jobs, and it did. I, I believe it. It actually did help me um, get the new job that I'm in right now. The um, I, I say that writing books is a horrible way to support yourself, um, but it does allow you to become kind of the expert when you can um, show somebody that you've te- you've gone into enough depth and a. Um, a publishing house has actually put effort into making a, a work that is is cogent and um, worth their time to actually sell. That that helps you if you want to go on a speaker series or if you want to get into um, 
doing freelance work, I think it helps a lot there. Um, but writing books, I think, um, by itself is just a horrible way to actually make any money. Um, but right. it does open up other doors that allow you to do other things, like get your name out there, um, uh, speaking, be, and you do um, have this this veil of an expert that is placed on you. Even though, if, even if somebody's not even reading your book, they will. Um, bring you in as the expert because you do have a book. Um, yeah, for, because you are, you, are literally, you are literally the guy who wrote the book. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> or the girl, I guess, in the case maybe. Yes. But, <clears throat> so that's really cool. So um, and w- one last thing I want to ask you, I guess, before we get into uh, maybe Facebook um, game development specifically, is the, you said that your current job relates to the writing of uh, Facebook games in some way? Well, the... Um, I am the head of a research and development group for the uh, digital humanities, and one of the projects that we've been working on is actually reevaluating how graduate methods are taught in the humanities. The um, what most humanities scholars are taught for their methods course is given a, a list of books or quotes or things to find in the library that are very difficult by a faculty member and um, just told to go f- find them. Um, right. And we think there are actually better ways to actually do this. And one of the things that we're um, doing is to teach uh, PhD and advanced graduate students um, programming. And this last year, we um, took six of them. And these were advanced PhDs in English and architectural history. And we're teaching them how to actually do programming. Um, And we were teaching them how to do uh, programming on the Rails stack. And um, what they came up with is a an, um, crowdsource interpretation of uh, literary works. And what this what you see is a lot of crowdsourcing tools out there that uh, allow you to do kind of, um, for lack of a better word, menial tasks like transcription and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But um, nobody's really leveraging the power of the collective uh, to actually interpret anything. Uh, so what this tool was, was not only a tool to kind of address that, but to teach um, graduate students um, not only how um, software is constructed, but also how to manage budgets um, and uh, work actually together as a team, um, which are some areas that humanities graduate students just don't have a lot of opportunity to do. So um Kind of tangentially, um, what I was wanting to do is um, use a lot of the stuff that we've been teaching them for JavaScript development and some of the issues that they had run into and address those in a book. Um, So um, some of this, um, when looking at the ideal audience, are kind of um, looking at really smart people who just don't know the vocabulary to get into something or to where to look next. Um, So... A lot of this book is actually aimed at that um, style of person, um, that that reader, and um, trying to get them up and running quickly. Interesting. So, the, so the, this this course that you had, or this program that you had for these six graduate students, mm-hmm. um, it, it was all based around a group project. And you set them on. And they, 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 was that a set pro, a project that you gave them, or did they just sort of you said to come up with something you guys want to work on, you think would be valuable, and then yeah, we, well. Um, We'd been planning this for about a year prior, and we had um, th- this is this project actually um, is quite old, um, and it deals with uh, uh, an area of, of of 
English literature called Patechism, um, and it, it is a, an area of how do you actually interpret uh, devices. Um, so we had kind of the, the basis of this project, and I had spent an afternoon kind of coding how I thought it would go. Um, mm-hmm. So we had a project in mind for them to do, but being English students, as soon as we pitched it to them, they globbed onto it and loved it and, and kind of took it from there. I resisted the urge to actually sit down and code too much into it uh, just to let them them really drive where the project would go um, and what the ultimate product would look like. So um, what they actually came up with was was... 99% all of theirs. Uh, and we'd have basically a weekly meeting where we'd all sit down and kind of talk about the, the last week's development cycle, uh, where things needed to go, and what needed to happen next. Um, so it was kind of a, a, a weekly scrum planning meeting, but I wouldn't really call it that because we didn't really um, adhere too much to the Agile methodologies. But um, it, it was a great training uh course for these folks, getting them to understand that just because you can see it on the web doesn't mean that it's easy to do. Um, right. Was a big takeaway, I think, for a lot of them. Very cool. Um, and would you say it was a success? I mean, was what they developed, I mean, I guess in two parts of what did they learn? Were they able to learn how to program like you hoped? And two, was the project itself useful in any way? Yeah. The, so the, the, um, the, the group kind of broke up into kind of project managers, front-end designers, and back-end designers kind of organically, which was really awesome. Uh-huh. Um, so the project, I think, was a success from um, getting the folks working together uh, as far as a, a first uh web project, I think it was a, a resounding success. There's a lot that we can still do. We've got funding for another year of this, um, so we're going to be able to take it uh, a bit further than we did this year. Um, but just having the opportunity for these folks to, to really get together and um, build a real project is is pretty awesome. Yeah, see, the, the problem with this interview is I think I could just go for another hour just on all this stuff, but <laughs> I guess we have to... We have to <laughs> I know there are some of our listeners that are going, come on, let's get, they want to hear about Facebook game development. So I guess we need to jump to that. But this is all really, um, really interesting stuff. Okay, so I guess we'll get into uh, game, the, uh, the meat of the interview now, which is about uh, Facebook game development. So why don't you, if you could explain how you create a Facebook game. I mean, what is a Facebook game? Is it, uh, is it just a, is it like creating a game on using JavaScript and HTML, and then it just uses the Facebook API to do certain things? I mean, what, what is it exactly? Yeah, so um, th- there are basically two kind of types of games on, on, on Facebook right now. Um, most of the games that you're playing right now are, are built on the Flash platform that interface with the Facebook APIs, and they're uh, Facebook uh, backends um, for Node, for PHP, for Ruby, Basically, any language that you want to be uh, programming your backend in and talking to the Facebook servers with uh, is supported. So um, building a game is, is, is just like um, you would do like 10 years ago uh, in Flash. Um, and one of the nice things with the, uh, H- the advent of the HTML5 support in browsers and the hardware acceleration of the JavaScripts is it's really making it possible to actually develop games in JavaScript these days that are, that are fun to do. Um, 
So basically what you do is you develop your game. Um, or the way I, I lay out at the book is actually you build an HTML game that, that works by itself. And then you want to add things into it like a high score, um, see if your, your friends are online, um, mm-hmm. allow people to buy um, um, coins or avatars or um, other things that could go along with your game. That's when you kind of move it into a server environment and then use the uh, Facebook APIs and server calls to actually interact with the Facebook um, APIs. Um, It's actually amazingly straightforward to actually uh, produce these games and push them onto the Facebook um, platform. I think one of the, the main issues that a lot of game designers are dealing with right now is that there's just not a way to monetize the HTML5 games uh, right now. And I think um, because of the framework, uh, Facebook is probably the the nicest way to go about doing it right now. If you are willing to um, kind of change your gameplay to allow people to buy things. Um, and if you're smart about how you actually integrate that into the gameplay, it's not a distraction. Um, I, I think that uh, that draw, draw with friends a game that uh, Zynga had purchased recently, which was really popular uh, um, and allowed you to kind of um, buy extra turns, but you didn't really need to. Um, and then uh, when Zynga got a hold of it, uh, they they kind of put too much of the marketing inside of it, and the uh, the number of users dropped off considerably. So I think there's you've got to figure out a, a good balance of being able to recoup costs for developer time, for servers, for infrastructure, whatever, and actually um, not getting in the feeling like it's getting in the way of the actual gameplay. So when you say buy things, you mean like buy digital payments or I don't know if, what, what the term is. So like if I have a farm, I guess, I've never played Farmville, so I'm just imagining what it is. So I want to buy something for my farm yeah. that goes in the game. I pay a dollar and I get a chicken coop or something. Is that basically? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, you, you can get a chicken coop or a frame or a flower or, or just something that doesn't really change the actual gameplay, but you can give to friends and whatnot. I see. And oh, no, why does, why are you? Why are game developers more easily able to monetize a Flash game versus HTML HTML five game? Well, it's perhaps not um, the 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 biggest thing is actually in how Flash uh, compiles itself. That you're not actually going to um, be downloading the source code for a Flash game, and and you can decompile it and all of these other things. But it does take actual extra effort to figure out how the game is actually working when you're using Flash, and you can actually limit it to domains. With JavaScript games, every time you uh, deliver your game, you're delivering the source code along with it. Uh, you can obfuscate it, but really what you're, um, that's really only good for actually uh, decreasing the amount of time it takes to download your game and make it feel speedy. It, doesn't do a really good job of actually changing it from somebody who knows anything about JavaScript. So anybody that has some JavaScript background can actually kind of uh, pretty print the the JavaScripts that you're downloading and actually kind of reconstruct it. Uh, so that that has actually scared a lot of companies away from actually making a lot of uh, investment in these things until you can figure out a way to actually develop or deliver these games that do a little bit better job in in your um, in your protecting your IP. Um, 
Well, uh, uh, okay, go on. Yeah, I, I'm more of the 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 um, vein of people that want you to put out a good game and make people want to take it. Um, but that has been one of the reasons that people have not been getting into um, actually HTML5 games as much as Flash. The, the other part is that the browsers, until very recently, have not been able to do a very good job of actually rendering HTML5 games. Um, right. So, uh, no, but that's, but that's changing. I mean, I guess the, yes. the modern versions of IE, Firefox, Safari, and Chrome probably do yes. support all those features, right? Yes, yes they do, and they, they do work great. Um, but a lot of the people that are actually playing games on uh, Facebook are typically at work and using work computers, which don't always have the latest and greatest software on them. Um, so that uh, is one of the things that um, you're, you're having to deal with. It, it's not uh, like you're running World of Warcraft and you've got a special machine with 10 gigs of RAM and uh, a, this kick-ass uh, video card on it. You, you basically have a, a work machine and somebody who's got 10 minutes. Um, so you have well, to into consideration right okay well it would seem to me that the lessons that have been learned many times in the computer software world is that you kind of want to shoot at a moving target you want to lead the hardware a little bit lead the Mm -hmm. browsers because you figure i mean i don't know how long it takes to build a a facebook game maybe that's they're simpler so they're not really it's not a year-long development cycle but even three months six months that you take to from concept to like actually getting something delivered. And then you figure just because it's just because you release something or you feel like you got something after six months that it's still going to be a number of months of marketing it and kind of pushing for anyone who uses it. So you got some time there. So mm-hmm. like, you know, kind of picture what the market, the browser market is going to look like in a year from now. I mean, is that, do you consider that a, 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 I don't know, is that a way to think about it or not? You, you, you could think about it. Um, the right now, the browsers are making uh, some serious leaps and bounds, um, and, and um, the the Microsoft is actually doing a great job of actually getting their runtime for JavaScript games um, at a high level. the The only bad thing is that <clears throat> some of this is that um, the corporate systems where a lot of people are using Facebook don't always upgrade their these the software or the hardware uh, in on a reliable thing. So looking a year down the road probably isn't um, the best thing to do. Um, with HTML5 games, they're a little bit generally quicker to to uh, get out, especially with a lot of these frameworks that are popping up that are really, really excellent. Um, but the you are limited by how fast JavaScript will render. And I... I I don't know if, if this year's um, Internet Explorer is going to be significantly faster than next year's Internet Explorer to make that um, worth really paying attention to down the road. Um, it may execute certain things a bit faster, but I, would, uh, I, I wouldn't aim any business decisions on um, all of these platforms performing significantly better so you could take shortcuts in how your game's actually operating. <clears throat> You still need to take a lot of care into optimizing a lot of the code that you're writing. So, but it sounds like, I mean, it sounds like also what you're saying is that Flash is a smarter business decision, but yet your your book you've written focused primarily on HTML5 game development, right? Well, <clears throat> Flash has been the um, 
the kingpin for the last decade, really, right. uh, in, in the game realm. Um, you just could not do anything that you could do in Flash until, uh, and really until Steve Jobs started complaining about it uh, and, dis- and made the decision that it would never go on the iOS devices. And that really kind of took a lot of people uh, to think about how we are actually developing these things. Um, HTML5 is going to, I believe, uh, continue to grow in market share, but the uh, the biggest player still is Flash right now. Um, I, I, I can see a shift in the, over the next year or two, um, but Flash is definitely the, the bigger market share right now. Right, right. So, but why? So, why did you focus on HTML5 if it's still a couple years away? Is it did? Um, is it more that a familiar your own personal familiarity with it, or the fact that you like open standards, or do you think that there's still is there still enough of a um, of a base audience that HTML5 is, is that can you that HTML5 will work for them? That that's that that's a good option. I mean. I, th- I think is a great option. It is um, they're open standards, open-ish standards. Uh, there are a couple of, of things that are, are recently occurred with like the the image sets, but um, the for the most part, it's an open standard. You know exactly what's going to happen. It's not beholden to uh, one single company um, maintaining itself in the long run. Um, working in the library, I'm also kind of concerned about. Um, the preservability of these things in the long run, um, that there is something significant about how games are constructed and how people interact with those um, from a scholarly perspective. And for the most part, people really don't care if it's Flash or HTML5 and probably won't be able to actually tell the difference between the two if they were running side by side. Um, There may be certain cases where one outperforms the other, or you can get a game developed in one faster than the other. But this is a growing um, trend in the gaming industry uh, for browser-based games. There is a lot of of work being put in to actually make games playable um, by uh, Google and, and other companies. And there's a lot of work actually being taken um, by companies that are taking these HTML5 games and then recompile them to run hardware accelerated on mobile devices, so iOS and Android. So there are a lot of companies kind of sprouting up around uh, HTML5 technologies. Um, even Adobe's um, putting, starting to put out uh, HTML5 uh, products. Uh, just because of their work chain, they can actually still make money. And I suspect what you'll see is that um, once Adobe has a system that works as well as Flash does um, for generating games, you'll see a, a marked shift toward those tools. Right. You know, it strikes me as a, a couple things you've said, which make me think that HTML5 is still not a bad option, which is one is that, even, you know, talking about the whole piracy thing, I mean, even if 5 or 10% of your audience decides to decompile your game or something and not pay for it, I mean, that in some way seems sort of not, not a big deal. I mean, because no. most people aren't going to spend to save themselves 5 or 10 bucks over a period of, I mean, I, I don't know how much people charge for these games, but I imagine if you're having people buy things in the games, you might make 10 or 20 bucks in a year off someone 
Yeah. Um, and, and I mean, a developer, it's not worth their time. I mean, it's not worth, you know, a half hour of their time to do that. I mean, maybe some do it just that for the fun of it or just on some kind of principle of like, I don't, I don't pay for software or something. But yeah. I mean, even if 10% does it, I mean, is that a big deal? I don't think it is. Um, quite honestly, I, I would ha- much rather have a lot more people playing my game and, um, with somebody with me taking the time to actually improve the gameplay, then try to figure out some clever way to obfuscate code. So um, to do a very small minority of people that would try to do something like that. And even if they are, I would love that somebody thinks it's cool enough that um, it, it's, it's worth decompiling and figuring out how I did something. Um, and maybe that's um, somebody you can hire in the future um, or, I just think there are better ways of actually handling this than um, trying to protect IP and using that as the reason that you don't get into this area. Right, right. That's that. I, that I don't know. That makes sense to me. The other thing is the idea that you talk about the performance issues. I mean, it's. I mean, I'm sure there's a, there's. You know, as as you mentioned earlier, there's a range of the kind of games that are on Facebook. Um, but it sounds like these little social games are the are sort of simple games that probably don't necessarily require incredible performance. Mm-hmm. In which case, you don't really care if one's ten or twenty percent faster. I mean, if you're playing Texas Hold'em or Angry Birds, I mean, something like that. I mean, do you even care? I mean, perform- I mean they seem to both be performant enough, or, or is yeah, that not you, true? You can get it performant enough. Uh, what you want to kind of avoid is is making it look jerky on the screen. You want it to be mm-hmm. smooth. Um, so you do need to pay attention to the frame rates um, that you're getting. But there is a threshold that you can uh, that is acceptable. And once you get your code to perform on that, on um, most of the browsers that you're targeting, it, it's more than fine. So yeah, okay. So that leads into another line of questioning I have, uh, which is, okay, so. You, one thing you mentioned in the book, and, uh, and I think it's the first chapter preface, where you, or I guess it's the intro maybe, is you talk about the fact that you use Canvas for your rendering and not SVG or you know, scaled vector graphics um, to, 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 to draw you know, objects. And mm-hmm. for people who don't know, so uh, SVG is scaled vector. It's a, graphic, it's a vector drawing method you you know you say draw a square or draw a oval or something and and it's just rendered and you just, you just give it a couple of parameters like uh you know width and curvature or something radius and then uh whereas canvas is more specifically like bitmap graphics i mean you're just like drawing pixels correct right now why you know why is it that um there seems to be a move generally towards canvas as opposed to SVG, and, and it's VML is the ver- version of SVG that runs on IE. So mm-hmm. wh- why is there a move towards Canvas, do you think, and why did you focus on Canvas? With Canvas really allows, gives you pixel-level uh, um, access to what you're actually rendering. So uh, uh, SVG is great if you have like a things moving around in the DOM, but if you actually need to get to pixel level to redraw something, that becomes very difficult in SVG, and you need something like Canvas that allows you to repaint the canvas on a a much higher scale instead of faking a refresh of the page um, like you have to do in SVG. So it's it's really kind of a, a... It was designed to do... These, this style of graphics um, and gaming in particular is very good at. So it's really the, the thing that you use, the tool that you use, um, because it was designed to do this 
um, specifically do these t- this style of, of, of programming uh, for the web. Dude, uh, oh, okay, sorry. Go, on. No, no, go ahead. Well, I, 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 I haven't messed around with uh, Canvas in a while, but I thought when, the way I remember it is that you know, when you, when you, even if you're just redrawing a couple pixels, I mean, you're, you're actually, the whole screen, ref, it's, it's ultimately the refresh of the screen or the, 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 the system or the browser handles that the fact that you're only redrawing those two pixels. So, like, I remember back in the 90s when I did some graphics drawing in, um, on Windows, you would say invalidate a rectangle. You would specify a, per, a certain region of the screen and you'd say invalidate this rectangle. So only redraw this, don't redraw the entire screen. Mm-hmm. Is that done implicitly? Is that done sort of behind the scenes handled by the browser? Like it just knows what to redraw or, or not? Well, it's actually usually handled by the framework that you're using or your own code. Um, so you, you do have to um, keep track of things that need to be redrawn and things that do not. And that's one of those tricks that we learned in the 80s on um, what parts of the screen need to be redrawn to increase the fr- the refresh rate. Um, so... You, we're still doing the same kind of tricks that you were doing back then. Okay, so validate rec. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so that's that's still the case. And uh, I remember one thing that one of the first things you learned in graphics program was the 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 double buffering mm-hmm. um, uh, trick. I mean, is that is that something you still do? Not not like you had not as much as you used to have to be able to do it, but you, um, you, you do a lot more pre-rendering and, um, and then, um, an off buffer and then moving it back on, um, the, um, you can sometimes I've, I've seen, um, clever uses of sprite sheets, which kind of mimic the double buffer, um, but are moving just the sprite sheet around in an area of a, of a, uh, graphic instead of um, doing the double buffer. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, and now one thing is that I, I, I guess I don't have that cl- uh, clear in my mind because I haven't followed it that closely is, you know, the HTML, f- the HTML5 category. So they keep saying, well, HTML5, you know, as if it's like one thing, but it's sort of a collection of, of improvements or, or features, right? There's audio and there's local storage and there's, I don't know, maybe WebSockets and I don't know, Chrome has worker threads. I don't even know if that's in the, in the HTML5. There's Canvas. I mean, what, what, what does HTML5 mean? Is there a specific um, list of features or, or something that's supposed to be supported? Well, the, yeah, so there, um, the um, W-H-A-T-W-G, um, I can't remember what the acronym is, like the web... Um, what it's standards. the standards committee that, that's actually working on this. Um, and it is a collection of um, standards that are pushing browsers into more of um, like application runtime, I, I would say. Um, and enabling a lot of things that a lot of developers were just doing as one-offs um, uh-huh. themselves. So you get um, like uh, form decorators for um, input. Now you don't have to write a little JavaScript to actually do that. There's an actual element handler that allow you to um, clear the um, the word search when you click inside of it. Um, so you don't have to write a JavaScript for that. Um, so there's little things like that that it includes. It's got um, the canvas. It's got the um, I would say audio is included, but it's that's kind of a, a really horrible um, 
in a horrible state right now. It's, it's getting a lot better, but it, it's still kind of weird. You still have to have multiple versions of of your audio to, to actually play. Um, you, depending on what browser you're on, there's a different standards for how you actually address different audio channels. Um, some don't even support it. They're conflicting um, uh, proposals out for different elements. Um, um, dealing with um, exceptionally high resolution screens like the retina screens um, is bringing into some co- controversy right now. But it's just looking at how people are are actually developing applications and doing uh, and adding components to um, make the browsers do a little bit more of the work that developers used to have to do um, to make the download times much, much faster uh, and to make life a lot easier. Right. But, when when people say, can you make an HTML5, um, it, it throws me into a little bit of nerd rage um, just because generally they've, they've heard the term and they don't exactly know what it is. So I just change the doc type and tell them that it's done. <laughs> right. Yeah, because I hear that a lot, HTML5, and I'm just wondering what people mean when they're saying that. Uh, I guess it just means they're moving, you're using the latest and greatest capabilities or something. Yeah, yeah generally the, the, the folks that say that to me don't, generally know what they mean by that um, and is kind of like when they say that they're um, doing something in the cloud. Um, it, it's <laughs> a buzzword that they hear and they, they don't, they know what's cool. They don't exactly know why it is, but they, they think they should say it. Yeah, we are, we are HTML5 in the cloud. Exactly. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, all right. One thing I wanted to ask about is, is, you know, you, we talked a little bit about individual developers being able to succeed at this or have some opportunity. I mean, you know, we, you hear about Izinga all the time. You know, yeah. that they're making a lot of money, and and but also that they're ripping off other companies. I mean, what are some of the other stories out there? Are there are there a lot of independent developers that can make a, a real living doing this, or is it mostly people messing around having fun and then Zynga's making? Well, the, one really there's actually money. Um, some folks from EA had recently started a company. I'm not sure exactly where they are with this yet, with any um, IP offerings yet, but um, they have actually um, developed a company to actually build um, high-level games like they used to at EA for Facebook. And I I think we'll be seeing something coming out of this group in the next year or so. So I think there are some some companies that are starting um, to get out there. There, um, Most of them... Most of the companies that are making money off of games on on Facebook are doing so through ads and, and other um, elements. So there there are ways to make money, um, but you got to get your game out to a lot lot more people. Um, and kind of the trade offs for the hobbyist versus the full time um, game developer is is a little different. Um, I actually was. A couple of weeks ago, some folks from our our business school here uh, came to talk to me because they had an idea for a company and they um, started um, collecting some funds to uh, develop a game for Facebook specifically. Um, So I know at least three people who are going to try to make this a go as a career or at least for. Right. Now, there's kind of a gold rush there for a while. It seemed like back a few years ago, just like there was an iPhone gold rush for a while yeah. is that has that subsided and they're sort of like or is it or is there still the same level of enthusiasm and participation as it was back i, I mean i'm trying to remember when this was was this like two years ago or three years ago yeah. when everyone I, I think, everyone wanted to create a facebook game 
Yeah, I think the gold rush has kind of died off a little bit um, just because it's, it's like in the, the, the days of the, the Atari when everybody could um, and their grandmother would, would come out with a game and 90% of them are crap. Um, you kind of saw that same thing happen. You, you get an oversaturation in the game market and people start playing and there's not a whole lot of differentiation between farm town and farmville um, or something other ville or city or whatever. And so people kept playing the same games over and over and over again. But I'm, I'm starting to see a little bit more innovation, um, a little bit more creativity in some of the games that are, are starting to come out. Um, just getting back to some of the basics of, of why you wanted to play games um, and, and share some of that joy with others, I think is a, is a mark in the right direction. Um, I'm seeing a lot more games that, or at least the ones I am currently playing, are not really popular games. They're just kind of games that somebody put together and then um, put onto Facebook to share with people. Um, is something cool that they did and it was it's just easy to push it out to Facebook and they're not really looking to make money on it so um, I think with these folks um, if they get enough people they eventually will need to look at ways of actually um, making a little bit of money on it just to maintain their servers um, but not I don't think a lot of the the folks I'm I'm developing games with are actually looking to make money right now. It's more of a hobby and sharing it uh, socially. Interesting. So it's kind of like maybe blogging. There's a few people who make money from their blogs. Most people do it as a creative outlet. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I think that's um, an excellent way to describe yeah. it. Yeah. Um, is there a, is there sort of like a community, a, a community built around this? I mean, are other sort of, is there sort of like a, a watering hole where a lot of these Facebook game developers hang out, trade trade ideas, test each other's games, that kind of thing? The, um, not Facebook per se. Um, there is a, a great IRC channel, um, hash BBG on Freenode, um, mm-hmm. that's uh, browser-based games. Uh, and there are a lot of, of the folks that are building the actual engines that – uh, a lot of the HTML5 games are built on or hang out there. Um, and the the conversations kind of go from um, story art to, hey, try this out. What do you think about this game, this concept? Um, how do I actually do this hard thing? Um, why is this performance on this browser crazy? How do I get the sound to play? So it, the, um, it, that is a, a great community to actually be in. Um, and I recommend that one highly. Um, but I'm not aware of any f- kind of, this is where Facebook explicitly game developers hang out. Right, right, right. Um, well, so speaking of, you said, you know, the fact that this browser-based game is not Facebook. I mean, Google, Google Plus has some kind of an API, but do they actually support like a game API like Facebook does? I don't believe they actually support port a game API um, they may uh, I, I'm just not aware of it okay so that, that, maybe that'll come out at a later point so yeah. it could be the kind of thing where just like you have to iPhone you have versions of your app for iPhone and Android you're going to have versions of your app that run on Facebook and run on Google Plus I guess yeah I, I could totally see that happening 
Right. Um, but I guess it'll be just just like the iPhone is a much bigger market than Android or has been. Maybe I don't know if it's still the case. The same thing will probably happen with Facebook. It'll probably take a while for Google Plus is a is anything but a sort of a, yeah, a minor. Most games that you see from Google are actually through the um, the Chrome extensions and mm-hmm. either um, kind of iframes to the actual games portal or allow you to purchase the game through um, through them. Um, but yeah, it'd be interesting if they actually had an a- some APIs that allowed you to kind of see what your friends were playing and high scores and that kind of thing in Google+. So is there a... Um, I, I, I have to admit, I, um, I don't really use Facebook. My wife uses it. So <laughs> <laughs> I have actually have two Facebook accounts, one for both of my, my two email addresses, my old Yahoo and my Gmail, email address and my Gmail address. Mm-hmm. And I've accepted friend requests from about from half my friends on one and half on the other. So I have these two sort of split <laughs> accounts that I never use. So it's kind of a disaster. I got to get that sorted out. So just so, so when I ask this question, I guess you have to understand that I don't really use Facebook and, and uh, my question might seem a little stupid, but how do you get a uh, one? Do you, is there like a, is there like an app store like a for games or do you, do you just click on a tab and just search for games and just say, add it on me? How do you get a game onto your Facebook page? Yeah. So basically um, it is, uh, there's a, um, all of the apps that are registered in Facebook that are public, um, there's a registry of that, and you can search uh, for your game. The way that a lot of people actually get to see this is through advertising, actually, though. Um, so you, um, you get a, um, a game, you do a little bit of advertising, it shows up on somebody's um, um, advertisement list. They think it's kind of cool. They try it out, and then their friends see that this person actually added this game, and, and that's kind of the the trajectory that you get a game and um, out there. So okay. it, it's it's a little social, it's a little marketing, uh, and it's hopefully a lot of cool on your part. Okay, so yes, yeah, so, so if, I guess you need to budget a little bit of money for advertising just to get it out there. Is yes, at least definitely. To boost it, right? Just to spike, spike it a little bit. Um, do you now in order to get a game registered? I mean, how how um, brutal is the process? Is it like the iPhone App Store where they're really um, they look through your game very carefully and make sure that it has to meet all kind of special standards for them to put it on, or is it more free for all, kind of like the Android? It is a free for all. Uh, basically, okay. you you while it runs through the um, through the Facebook servers. They're more of a proxy for your actual game that lives somewhere else. Right. So as long as you adhere to the um, the terms of use, your game will be fine. Um, there, there's not really any review process. You just kind of tell your friends about it, and it's out there. So even even like even like games that might be pornographic or something, they can just show up. Like Facebook doesn't say anything about that. Doesn't well, care. That, that, that violates the terms of use, and will okay. Be- Okay, so they do. So there's not it's it's not it's not an active rep- approval, but they'll take down games that if they Correct. find out that they I see. So more reactive. Yes. Um, okay. The the other uh, question I have about the technology of it is real time games. So do you, do you see many examples of of using of games that are using web sockets and, and sort of real time? I mean, I, I'm trying to figure out how possible that is given mm-hmm. today's technology. You know. Um, I mean, yes. is that stuff possible? Have you seen it happen at work? I mean, what's yeah? So there's a company called Isogenic that actually has an engine that they will host for you that will do real time gaming, um, and they've got a Node.js um, 
system with a MongoDB backend. So they are um, they claim to have very good throughput. I've, I've not developed any games with them, um, but it looked like a very cool technology. Um, with the use of uh, Node and um, other ways of actually streaming content to the end user, I see no reason for there not to be some very highly scalable um, um, real-time games out there. Um, I haven't. Yeah, that's not, that sounds really fun, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Building a real-time some kind of real-time strategy game on uh, using Node and uh, and making it available, making it available on Facebook or something. That sounds like a fun project. Yeah, I, I mean, the, that's actually what these um, these kids from the business school were were came to me last week to talk about. Uh, the, the game actually sounded really interesting, so I'm I'm hoping they move forward on that, and then I could point you to a, a, a real example of this soon. And, and so the game the game engine is called Isogenic. Yes. What's how do you spell that? I S O G E N I C. Okay, I want to make sure that people, our listeners, could uh, get to it if they wanted to. That sounds really cool. Do you have any other sort of game frameworks that can help jumpstart development, or or so that people aren't reinventing the wheel? Yes, um, there are some really great HTML5 game engines. Uh, Crafty JS is awesome. Um, I really love it. The there is one called uh, Melon JS, which I actually use in the book, um, just because it doesn't um, require you to buy anything to do a side scroller game. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is um, let's see, C A A T, and I don't remember off the top of my head what that stands for, um, but that um, the, um, allows you to do a lot of really cool. Um, here it is. The Canvas Advanced Animation Toolkit uh, is C-A-A-T. Um, uh, Melon.js, um, Crafty. There are a lot of game engines. And if, um, on GitHub, there's a page that lists um, all of the known HTML5 game engines. And gosh, when I looked the last time, there were probably 200 engines on there. Good grief. Wow. Yeah, there, there there are a lot. So some of them have been abandoned, um, but there are a lot of people kind of hacking on these engines and trying to get something really good out there. Um, so yeah, the, there there are a lot of engines. If you just do HTML5 game engine in Google, mm-hmm. you're going to find more than you really need. Um, but in the book, I, I cover a few uh, and kind of go over some of the... the um, pros and cons of some of the more popular ones and what when they're good in certain situations. Right. Uh, yeah, that, uh, yeah. So, okay. So do you, do you have actually have a, a link to, or, or do you know the URLs of that GitHub page? Or the, just yeah, the t- um, could I send them to you after? Yeah, 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 yeah. Do, yeah, do that and we'll put it in the notes. No problem. No problem. Well, could you maybe take us through the process of creating a game or, or, the, or your process? I mean, you know, like when you create like a web app or um, I mean, an iPhone mobile app, a lot of times what you might do, I mean, I don't necessarily always do this, but I know uh, this is what a lot of people do and is helpful is, is mock it up using like, you know, with these like balsamic mock-ups or something, right? You kind of mm-hmm. draw the screens and you make them click through and you, that way you can kind of see how the, how the UI is going to work, what the functionality might be like. I mean, you know, is there a process similar to that for creating games, or do you just kind of sketch it out on paper and and just start coding? What's what's the process? So for me, I, I like to kind of sketch out how I want the UI to look, mm-hmm. and a lot of the games I do are, are kind of side scrollers. So um, 
going from a sketch and then going in and collecting graphic assets uh, to kind of do what I want and mocking this up is a, is a very graphical um, interface um, using tiled, um, which allows me to kind of build up the maps pretty quickly uh, in the way I want to. Um, I have in the past also just done a bunch of cowboy code and, and just start coding kind of throwing things together. Um, there's a lot to be said for having um, just a rectangle on a screen moving around that you know is going to represent a thing that you will eventually get a, a graphic for. Um, right. To show people. Um, so it really depends on on what you're trying to get uh, get done fast. Some people find that method of developing um, horribly uh, distracting because they want a real idea of what this end this polished product is going to look like in the end and they'll get distracted if there's a red square going around in the, in the, (laughs) on the screen. But I kind of like an iterative process where you kind of, um, um, you kind of sketch out on a piece of paper what you're trying to accomplish and then start blocking out the major components in your code. Um, and then as you're going along, um, adding on a layer of graphics, adding on a layer of, of um, interactivity, adding on a layer of the title screen, the end credits, the, the music, um, and the graphics and the sound and everything else that you're going to need in the game. Um, that works well for me. Other people um, have different workflows, but it's really just finding what works best for you for you to get your stuff done. Uh, people who work with other uh, developers or uh, graphic designers or, or sound engineers, um, th- you kind of have to figure out what works best for you and whomever you're uh, partnering with. Um, because everybody's creativity kind of comes in ebbs and flows. You have to figure out how to strike a good balance between uh, when one person's kind of low in the productivity scale and one's in the high and making sure that you're not conflicting. Um, so it really just depends on what, what your personality is, how you're, how you actually um, approach development work and how and who you're working with. Right. You know, speaking of that, I mean, y- you mentioned that it's not a lot of developers are making a lot of money doing this. It's more of a creative outlet. But mm-hmm. to get, you know, decent graphics designed and and sound, I would imagine, you know, that's going to cost some money. I mean, I, I so my first question is, how do you find people like that? How much do they cost to do? How much? How much would it cost to get some get some basic graphics designed for your yeah. game? And uh, you know, how does that play into the equation? Well, you quite honestly, there are some. Um, some areas on the uh, on the internet, um, open game design or open game art um, that has people who just like to develop art artwork for um, for games that put them online for you to use. Um, just be sure that you read the uh, the license on it, but okay. um, that that is always a good start. Um, and then on um, you know just. Talking to people that are interested in games, you can usually find somebody who's really good at one component of it. Um, and if you're working together uh, as as a side project, uh, you may not have to to be paying out anything. Um, other than that, it, it's um, going in and talking to different um, 
graphics designers around, um, right. and it's going to cost you whatever their going rate is. Um, but um, you can get quite far with stuff that you can find on the internet for free, and there are ways of actually licensing um, pre-created uh, sprites and, and um, background sheets. Um, but a lot of folks I know, the, the graphics aren't that difficult to do to do and you're really talking on a smallish screen anyway in 2d that people are pretty forgiving about um, how horrible your graphics look as long as they work well so but if you were doing like the 2.5d the kind of uh i guess uh starcraft is that starcraft mm-hmm. is works that way yeah. and things things like yeah. that i mean and, or first person shooter i mean are are there many facebook games that even work that way no um okay the, the the first person shooter games are a little bit beyond the um, the technology running in the browser right now. Um, okay. You run into issues of like um, you need to control where the person's looking at, and what if the the uh, mouse goes off the viewport? Um, so there's some technical issues that um, there are going to be solutions for, but they're just they just don't work very well right now. Um, I and, see. Rendering in, in three dimensions, you don't see a lot of, of games right now rendering in three dimensions other than like some maze games. Um, but yeah, the, it, that's not that big of a concern right now just because the, 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 the hardware is just not there yet. So it's just keep it simple right now. Let's keep it simple, fun little either retro games or simple games like, I don't know, Solitaire or, or, uh, or, or whatever, things that aren't, aren't about um, the fancy Fancy graphics, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, I've seen some interesting um, way, uh, ways people have been pushing it. Um, saw a very nice uh, game rendered in um, uh, in three JS um, with some ducks flying around, but it wasn't like a, a first person shooter like um, Halo or anything like that. Um, just because of some of the technical issues that you run into of, of like like the mouse, the mouse being one of the biggest ones, what happens when you move the mouse off to the side of the screen where um, the browser takes back, takes over control again and you get shot in the head. Right. Right. So do you think it's possible if, if, you wanted to, um, if you created a game, you kind of mocked it up just using, like you said, square, you know, red squares or whatever, got the game mechanics, and then went on like this RRC channel. You, I think it was called, um, was it BBG? Is that what yes. the hash BBG on Freenode? And yeah. said, hey, here, here's where I am. I need, I need some help, some graphics, sound help. And, and you, is it able, are you able to find people who might jump in and help you that way? They would definitely be able to point you in a in a direction to get some some help in whatever component that you're working on. Yeah, right, right. And and um, what more technical question? Which is, uh, I saw an interesting um, demo the other day of web of WebGL. I guess it was Eve Online, that big uh, space. Uh, I guess it's kind of like a space um, game, <laughs> spaceships and stuff, future yeah. futuristic space, you know, battles or something. And the WebGL was amazing. It was in the web browser. Mm-hmm. Um, does that, what's the status of, of WebGL on the various, uh, on the various different browsers? And can you make access, you make use of that in, in your Facebook games? You can, um, the, um, rendering 3d graphics is, uh, a bit more intensive than 2d graphics. And that's why you see a lot of isometric views in a lot of these games, mm-hmm. um, because you can kind of fake the 3d effects in isometric views. Uh, I think um, 
as, as more and more um, developers kind of start thinking that um, WebGL is actually a, a viable um, issue or a, a viable uh, solution, you'll see more and more of these. Um, and I, I've seen some really amazing things being rendered. Um, but it really requires that the um, the hardware acceleration on your graphics card work uh, mm-hmm. at a very high speed, and that's just not always the case yet. Uh, and there's still a very large number of people that don't have um, the ability to render WebGL, um, like Internet Explorer users, um, that would essentially... Um, kind of close you out of the market unless you did some clever things to kind of trick them into using Chrome Frame or something like that. But I do think right. that we're going to see far more of these things start popping up in the next year or so. Right, because I've never played it before, but EVE Online, I guess, is something that you would have to use either Firefox or Chrome for, right? Yes, you you would have to use a modern browser. It, it would maybe run on IE9. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, I was pretty impressed when I saw the WebGL demo. I was like, "Wow, <laughs> it's uh, it sure is getting there." Yes, so I, I know, I know, I know we're about out of time. So I want to ask you. I want to end on sort of like one sort of I don't know philosophical um, question. Is from your perspective, what what makes a good Facebook game, and where it where should a first time game designer start? I mean, what 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 should they build or what should they, you know, start experimenting with? I think a good Facebook game is a game that you would want to play yourself. Um, If, if you aren't wanting to play the game and play it repeatedly, it's not going to be a compelling experience for other people. Right. I think that is key to, to developing a good game It's something that you want and you want to share with others. You want other people to enjoy the game the same way you are. Um, So I, if you, if you can nail that, I think a lot of the other pieces will fall into place for you. Um, if you can figure out a way to, um, to share your game and make a little bit of extra money, even better. Um, I, I see where a lot of kind of the uh, game development, the, the market for these things is um, buildings, uh, kind of one-off games for um like movies and um, advertising firms and and that kind of thing where you want to have some sort of interactivity um, that's not just kind of look at our ad type of thing. Um, So start thinking creatively about how people interact with things and provide an engaging experience, um, you'll be successful. Um, And getting into that, um, you just kind of have to have a drive to want to be able to do it. And um, quite honestly, you, it, it takes a lot longer than you ex- expect to write a game. Um, and it's a lot of late nights and a, a lot of things just not working and a lot of frustration. Um, but in the end, if you've got something that somebody else wants to play because they find it uh, fun, that's the payoff. What about, uh, and I guess one follow-up on that is, what about like the sort of edutainment categories. You're creating games that are fun but are also educational um, mm-hmm. for, I don't know, either K through 12 or even, you know, older. I mean, is, is that, is that, a, is that turn out to be a, a decent market or a, a compelling audience? There, there, to, there's, just, well, the, um, my wife is a high school principal, and so we've actually kind of had some of these discussions about this. Um, the companies that make money in edutainment 
are companies that have that go out to individual school systems and get a contract that this becomes part of their curriculum. I think so. Um, that's one of the big ways that you actually make money is that you get a marketing department, you go out and you say, we've got this great resource. Um, why don't you pay us this amount of money and we would, and we'll provide this. Um, a lot of schools actually block Facebook. So that becomes a little wow. bit difficult. So then you're really targeting parents who you want, um, to get your children to read. Um, and depending on, um, the concerns of the actual parents on um, interacting with people in Facebook, which is a, a very large community, instead of um, a much smaller community that is geared toward um, K-12 or um, lifelong learners. Um, mm -hmm. it, it, there are different concerns that, that different people have. So I don't know if Facebook specifically um, edutainment is a, would be a big market, but you could still use the same, um, um, types of games, uh, and just push that to a different, um, you would just have to take on the, um, the, um, authentication and some of the other nice things that Facebook actually provides for you. I see. I see. Okay. Well, uh, I think I'm out of questions and I know you're out of time, so <laughs> I okay. guess we'll, uh, we'll, we'll cut it there, but, um, you know, Wayne, it's it's really been a pleasure having you on, and this is just uh, this has been fascinating to me because I've uh, I know so little about it, but it seems games are such a fun thing to, or games are such a fun thing to develop. Um, that uh, it's I think uh, hopefully this will uh, spur some of our our listeners to maybe give it a shot. Right. This was this was fun. Yeah. Um, and uh, for our listeners, just one more time. So you're, the name of uh, Wayne's book is Beginning Facebook Game Apps Development by Apress. Um, and you can get it on Amazon and, uh, yeah, that's, uh, I have, I've just have mine on the way now. So <laughs> I don't know if I'm actually get around to create an entire game, but, uh, I've, I have a couple of little ideas I want to play with and this yeah, seems like it may be fun. So, well, thanks again and, uh, best of luck with the, with the book. And, uh, again, thanks for coming on. All right. Thank you so much. All right. That's a wrap. We're out.